I'm very thankful to be here this evening. We're thankful for the presence of everyone here. And as I begin my study, I hope that the things I have to say will be edifying to everyone here. And lucky for everyone here as it pertains to everyone here. We're going to talk about the church this evening and having a love for the church or loving the church. You know, I think we've got a really good thing going here. Uh, I love this congregation. I love this church. But there's always things that we can work on. There's always uh, things that we need to guard ourselves for and never take these things for granted because of how blessed we are. And I want to ask the question tonight, why do we come to church? What are our reasons for being here? What are our reasons for being a part of this congregation and being a part of the kingdom of Christ? Perhaps we like the social aspect of it. Perhaps, you know, our our friends and family are here. um, And, you know, those are good reasons. Um, Maybe it's it's because of the relationships that our children can have uh, with other children here. And, you know, we're blessed in that regard. Uh, maybe we come to church because of the construct or the traditions that we like. Uh, we like the things, the way things are done. Uh, maybe we're proponents of doing things the right and biblical way, and of course that doesn't have to do with tradition. But as members of the church, maybe we want to uphold those, or we feel like we want to uphold those biblical truths. Maybe it's the worship aspect that we like. So there's a host of different things that and answers that we could give about why we uh, enjoy, why we think it's important to come to church. But I'll tell you tonight that it's bigger than anything really that we could think of. It's bigger because of any reasons, any of those reasons, because of what the church is and what the church stands for. You know, so what is the church? And I think we throw that term around rather loosely. And when I built this study, I counted, and there's about 50-plus churches in Plainview alone. And you know what? Most of the time, they all teach different things or a different variety of things. But we'll look in Acts 2, and this is one of the most quoted scriptures when it comes to talking about the church. This is when the church was established. Acts 2, verses 41 says, Then they gladly received his word and were baptized, and they, and in the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily... With one accord in the temple and breaking of bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So this is, as I said, was when the church was established. First of all, how were people added to the church? Well, it says they were baptized. And we know that baptism is putting on Christ and gaining remission of sins. And it says they were added to the church. They are added to the kingdom of Christ. <clears throat> so the church is the redeemed. It's a collection of, the, of those who are saved, of those who are 
uh, of those who are in Christ. So we see it's not just a social group. It's not just a building. It's not even just a congregation of people. This passage shows what the church is really like. And here's a list here. It says they continued steadfast in doctrine and fellowship. So we see study and fellowship. We see worship and breaking of bread and in prayers. It said fear came upon every soul. It says, so that means they had a reverence for God. They had unity. They had all things in common. They had benevolence. They sold their goods. And we see there's unity and commitment. With, it says daily they were with each other in the temple and breaking of bread from house to house. So we see hospitality and the list goes on. So do you think that these people loved the church? You know, can we see the things, can, or can we say that these things are said of us? And how could we improve? How could us as individuals improve these areas to benefit and to make the church better and more like that first century church that we read in Acts 2? You know, I'll be honest, I, I read this and I see the commitment that these people had and, and that they had for the church, and I'm, I'm very convicted. You know, I, the first thing I thought of was how much I rely on myself and as a family how individualistic possibly we are and not being in one accord, being with one another, breaking bread from house to house. There's other things. But, you know, we, we all seem to be very individualistic, and I think a lot of it has to do with our culture as well now. Uh, but they were doing things as one, as one body, and they were relying and leaning on one another. Ephesians 5, verse 25 says, Husband loves your, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ has loved the church and gave himself for it. So the church is important because of the cross, uh, because of the cost that Christ, uh, the cost of Christ's blood. He gave himself for the church, and you know, if we're to be like Christ, then at the very least, I think this verse is implying that there, as members of the church, there's something that is required of us. And you know, we may or may not have to give our lives for the church, but no matter what happens in our lifetime. We need to know that as a child of God, there will be something required of you. To be a part of the kingdom of God, there is something required of you. We've got to give ourselves to the church. You know, Christ died for so much more than just a social group or a gathering of people. Ephesians 1 verse 23 says, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. You know, people will say that church isn't all that important. But what does it say in reference to the church? It says that it's the fullness of Christ. So why would we treat church with such a cavalier and apathetic attitude like some people do? And I can't even put it into words, the gravity of that statement, the fullness of of him, the fullness of Christ. You know, the establishment of the church in Acts 2 is a pivotal moment in history in what God has wanted for his people, for his creation. God's purpose for us is to allow Christ to reign over us, to reign over his church. And so the word church really 
is different compared, I know, to how some people use it today or how we might use it today. When they say the church is important, they're talking about most of the time corporate worship or being a part of, of, that, of that social group. But again, it's so much more than that. You know, being a part of Christ's kingdom, of the Lord's church, is something that we are. It's who we are. It's not just what we do two or three times a week. And you know, if that's all that this is to us, then we're obviously not getting it, right? If the church is just a social club or a place or a place that we can come to maybe make ourselves feel important or feel justified, then we're missing the point. If we come here to do just because that's what our family's always done or maybe we married into it, if that's the only reason that we're here, then we're missing the point. We're missing the greater blessing. And I'm not saying that, you know, our worship here isn't important and what we do here isn't important. It's extremely important. And I hope that we'll see that it's not about, it's not all about what we're doing here, but it's about who we are every single day of our lives. Being a part of the church means you're a part of the kingdom of Christ. You're a part of the fullness of Christ. Matthew 2, verses 36 uh, through 40 says, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So when I think about what it really means to love the church, I immediately went to a passage like this. You know, I've... I've always loved the passage because of what it says in the end. It really simplifies things. Simplifies things. It says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So, uh, if, if I have these things in my life, and if I could possibly, and it's impossible to perform it perfectly, but if I could perform it perfectly, then everything else in my life would fall into place, right? So, I think if we're going to talk about loving the church, we have to start here. Having a love, first of all, for God and having a love for our fellow man, and, for our na- and, and that includes our neighbor on the street, not just those in the church. So let's talk about having a love for God. 1 Timothy 3, verses 15 says, But if I tarry long, thou may knowest how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, and the pillar and the ground of the truth. So the church, it says here, is the pillar and ground of truth. You know, part of the mission of the church is to uphold God's Word. And we uphold, we're to uphold that Word without compromise. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 through 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible did not come from man alone. It says, and you know, people will think, you know, they'll tell you that, you know, the Bible's just uh, a handful of, of good stories uh, compiled by men, but it's not really inspired. You know, if, but if we love the, char- the church, we're going to uphold God and His teachings and the teachings that we find in His Word. It says that these men wrote uh, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So this word we have is the word of God. You know, if the church is really the pillar and ground of truth in its members, the body will uphold God's word. Is members our 
one of our goals and our primary goal when we're here is always to uphold God's Word, uphold the truth. We need to uphold that truth, like I said, without compromise. And, and what happens when we get away from the truth? What happens when we have different ideas? When it comes to doctrinal issues, that's when the church becomes divided. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now this is verse 10, but then in verse 12, he finishes off and he says, Is Christ divided? If the church is the body of Christ, how can it be divided? Like I said earlier, there's over 50 or 60 churches here in Plainview alone. Do you think that that's how God intended it? You know, we can go back and look at the first century church in Acts. They had a reverence for God and His Word. And it said, with singleness of heart, they praised Him. The singleness means that tells me that they, in fact, are not divided. They had all things in common. So when we compromise the inspired Word of God, then it destroys that unity that we are striving for. And we need to strive for unity. <clears throat> you know, it's very evident that the church in Jerusalem was, or this first century church was on fire for God. They loved the church. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of, uh, I guess, sometimes as I was a teenager, you know, uh, from time to time we would try to build fires, and me and some friends would go out and, and try to build this fire, and we weren't very good at it, but I know that when all else failed, we just threw gasoline on it, and it, and it hoped that would take, and uh, there was some, some trouble there as well, but one thing I did learn when building these fires is that you can't spread those logs apart. They've got to be rather compact, and as you light that fire, as you get that fire going, the, that, the, each individual log is on fire, but also works for, uh, works together to build heat and, uh, and build light. But what were to happen if we were to, if I were to take those logs and divide them and spread them all out? It would become a smoldering, it would just be a bunch of smoking wood. It would provide no light, no warmth. <clears throat> and, you know, we think about that analogy, and we think back to the church. When the church is divided, it cannot be effective in being a light to those who are in the dark. That fire that we built as teenagers, it provided heat and light. But once it was separated, those logs were almost useless to us. A church divided cannot be what it needs to be for those who are hurting, for those who are looking for a warm place to take refuge from a cold and sinful world. <clears throat> you know, another thing we see in Acts 2 about this church is that they were zealous. Romans 12, verses 11 says, Not lagging in diligence, fervent spirit, serving the Lord. That word fervent in Strong's means to be hot or to glow. So we need to be on fire for the church. We need to be on fire for God and His Word and upholding His Word while uh, st striving to uphold unity as well. Revelation 3, verses five, uh, 15 through 17 says, 
I know thou works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You know, lukewarmness is just a terrible form, at the very best, just a terrible form of blasphemy. If we say that we love God and we love the church and we don't show it by our actions, by our deeds, then it's a disgusting act to God. You know, when we were kids, we used to uh, play church at someone's house or whatever. And, you know, uh, you'd get up on the fireplace and act like we were leading songs or someone else would do preaching and then maybe sometimes there'd be uh, a communion. But it was all pretend, right? And I guess you could call it a game that we were playing. We were doing it for our own entertainment, for our own enjoyment. Uh, but we were basically just actors playing out this, this game. But is that how we treat the Lord's church? Are we actors playing out some irreverent game when we come here? You know, that may be a hard question, but if we handle God and His church, the fullness of Christ, in this way, with a lukewarm, irreverent attitude, then we're just actors. It's not real. And you know, people can see if it's real most of the time. And more importantly, you know if it's real. And more importantly than that, God knows if it's real. If we love the church, then we're going to be on fire for it because it's Christ's church. It's the church that he gave his life for. <clears throat> Galatians 10 ver or 6 verse 10 says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. We're going to talk about loving those in the body of Christ. So who are we to do good to? All men, but what does it say? Especially those who are of the household of faith. You know, I've wondered why, why he put it that way, especially to, to those. And I think, at least the way I see it, or, or uh, part of the reason why is because of the relationships that we have within the body of Christ. <clears throat> and hopefully, the relationships we have here are the most important ones that, we, that we'll ever have. And again, we'll go back to the church in, in Acts 2 when it was established. What did they do to promote this, this idea? And we'll read these things again. It says that they, they studied and fellowshiped with one another. They had unity, commitment, uh, hospitality, and they had favor with all the people. They, they loved one another. <clears throat> Does this sound like a church that loved each other? Does it sound like a church that loved the brethren? You know, they were, as I said earlier, they were spending every day with each other. They were going from house to house, fellowshipping with one another. They were studying God's Word in each other's homes. And those relationships that were formed, surely they were deep and lasting because of, of what they were doing here. And I hope that we're able to say that, you know, our best relationships, our best friends... Are in this or in the, are in the church of God. Uh, Ephesians two verses nineteen says, "Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God." If we love the church, we're going to have a deep desire to be around God's people, and not only that, we're going to have a, de a desire to have more deep and meaningful relationships 
with those in the church. It says that we're not strangers to each other, but we should consider each that we are fellow citizens. Our relationships are important. You know, a lot of the time here, a lot of the time, the things we enjoy and the experiences we might have, they, they meet, might seem so small until it's, all, until it's taken away from us. And I think maybe y'all know what I'm talking about. You know, that shows us why the church is more important than just a worship aspect, our relationships. Otherwise, you know, we could just uh, be on Zoom every service and call it good. But church is also about our relationships, how we can benefit from our brothers and how we can help our brothers and sisters. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. Therefore comfort one another and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. You know, this is just more good admonition for the church. You know, what if the church had, this, had all, all had the same goal in performing all of these duties? You know, he talks about having peace. How important is peace to each and every one of us? I think it's very important, right? Peace isn't something, though, that just comes by accident, but it's something that we have to pursue. God's Word commands us to pursue peace with each other because, you know what, it's inherent for men to have conflict. Another thing that I thought was interesting, it said, uh, it talks about admonition and those it says, now we exhort you, brethren, those, uh, warn those who are unruly. I hope that we're not prideful enough to be able to take loving admonition from a brother or sister in Christ. I hope we're not too prideful to, uh, to think that, that that shouldn't be done. Because you know what? They, they, if someone is coming to me because of a problem in my life, it's because they love me. It talks about having patience. And I think patience and peace are, are very similar. You know, we're, we're not always going to agree with one another. And, you know, there's overarching principles and teachings that we need to follow, but we need to submit to one another. That's what it comes down to. Ephesians 5 verse 21 says, Submitting your, yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So what does it really mean to submit to one another? And you can look earlier in Ephesians and you can see some context, but what he's doing is he wants them to realize that their identity is in Christ and that they should live to reflect that identity. And then he, go, he goes here and he says that we're to submit to one another. I want to read, I don't have it on on the slide, but I want to read in Ephesians 5 a few of these passages. Ephesians 5 verses 22 is where we'll start. It says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subjected unto Christ, 
So let the wives be to their own husbands in, every, in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ has loved the church and gave himself for it. Let's skip down now to chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Uh, verse 4, and, and ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them forth in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Also in verse 9, And ye masters do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respecter of persons with him. <clears throat> okay. So, I think the this talks about different positions in society. And I think that he proceeds to show that it's not based on the merits or social ranking of another person. Not because we deserve it, but we are to submit because we fear God. And you know, Christ is the greatest example in submitting to one another when he lowered himself and became a man to die like a common criminal. In this same way, because of Christ, what Christ did for us, we should value one another. Uh, I'm going to continue my thought here in Ephesians, but I want to read Philippians 2, verse 3. It says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. So we have to view each other better than ourselves. And to submit to one another is to perceive ourselves as lesser for the benefit of our brother. You know, this idea of submitting to each other is one of the most important principles when it comes to our relationships in the church. Paul, then we get into Ephesians 5 verse 10, and he gives these instructions for these various roles. Said, and he first said that wives are commanded to submit to their husbands, husbands to submit, to, uh, to submit their wife, to their wives by what? Loving them selflessly, illustrating that love that Jesus had for the church. He goes on to say that children are commanded to submit to their parents in obedience but then fathers are to submit to them by not, what, provoking them to wrath and training them up in the nurture of the Lord. Then Paul addresses servants and masters, and he says that servants should align themselves under their masters. But then he goes on to say that masters need to submit, basically, by treating their, uh, their slaves well. Treating their, that's the New King James Version. Treating their slaves well. And I think that it's the most... I think it's important to see here that all of these people, no matter of the social standing, where they are in society, they're all equals in Christ. No person is more important than the other. You know, in, Roma, in Romans 16, I think we did a chapter study about a year ago, but in Romans 16, Paul is concluding his letter, and he starts naming people, starts calling off people by name. And it reminds me of something we read earlier when he, when he says to recognize those that labor among you. That's what he was doing here. He was giving recognition to these people that had helped him and probably been like a family to him in his, in his travels. Uh, and I think what was pointed out in that chapter was that a lot of these people that he mentioned were women. 
You know, Paul, in that letter, he didn't necessarily identify them as women or what social group they were, but we could figure that out by context. You know, I think the reason was because it didn't matter, right? All these people were important to Paul and the church, and he, and he was recognizing that. And I think there's an important lesson here. Sometimes, you know, whether it's, it's societal pressures or, or, uh, or whatever you, you want to call it, we tend to get wrapped up in what our identity is outside of Christ, outside of the church. Romans 3, or I'm sorry, 1 John 3 verses 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. So the church, as the church, we're called the children of God. And yes, God has given us certain roles in the church based on who we are and, uh, and all that, but, and, and maybe different gender things. But in Ephesians, Paul lays out these different responsibilities that we talked about. And we, may, and we have these different responsibilities based off our place in society but I hope that we all realize that, you know, what's done in here, what's done on this stage is very small compared to everything else that's, that hopefully the church is doing. In my job and duty to this congregation and in my home and in my family is not any more important than Haley's duty as a sister in Christ, a mother, or a wife. But you know what? It's, it's difficult to submit to each other, and that's because of pride, right? I think we had a lesson about that not too long ago. You know, my pride stands in the way of being gracious and viewing others better than me, of, of, doing, of, of submitting to my brother. <clears throat> you know, I think another aspect of submission, another difficulty when it comes to submitting to one another is because it means sometimes that we have to be, we have to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. And it's not easy, it's not an easy thing to do sometimes. But I think there's a blessing, and I know that there's a blessing that comes with letting those walls down and confiding in our brother or our sister in Christ. And, you know, we'll go back to all of us having different roles and responsibilities. The role between the Son and the Father that we read about. When both parties submit to God and submit to each other, then both the parent and the child's needs are met. So do we see the beauty in God's plan if we just humble ourselves and submit to Him and submit to each other? You know, when both parties are treating the other as more worthy of respect and love than the, than the other, then both people will get what they need from each other. From the young to the old, male and female, if we esteem each other greater than ourselves, then we can better meet each other's needs because, you know what, pride is left out of the equation. <clears throat> okay, let's talk. Nope, I have one more. Yeah, no, that's it. Submission and servitude. Mark 10, verses 38 through 46 says, And Jesus called them and to him and said unto them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles 
uh, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever, or but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, a ransom for many. And I think this falls right in line with what we've been talking about. We're all equals in Christ. Christ came to serve. He lowered himself below sinful man because he loved us. Christ has called us to do the same. And I hope we never feel like we are above serving as Christ did. He poured himself out for us, for the church, for, the, for sinners. The church and God's people, what did we say, is the fullness of him, right? It's who he was. He gave himself, but he also, he gave his entire self. He poured himself out for the church. You know, I can give of my time. I can give money, maybe give some at advice or admonition, but a lot of the time, the things that, that maybe I do don't cost me all that much, right? I haven't truly poured myself out, and I think that that's what's required of us in the body of Christ. And you know, for some of these small things, I might get a pat on the back or a good job, but you know, it doesn't really cost me, and, but really, I can do anything for the, for the church, but if I don't have a pure love for these things, it means nothing. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 4, a very familiar passage that says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become as a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have a, the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing." And though I bestow all the goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and if I have not love, it profits me nothing. So if I sh strive to really give myself like Christ did to the church, then I'm going to start to identify myself with the church that my Savior gave his life for. That means that I will start to identify myself with the members of the church. I'll start giving attention to your name, to your reputation, because I view that as my very own. I view that your reputation as my reputation. Your name is my name. <clears throat> my glory that I might have becomes yours, and the glory that you have is my glory. And you know what? My pain is your pain. This is how we should love one another within the church, because... That's how Christ loved. We don't just embrace one another, but we rest the weight of our identities upon one another. We rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I consider you better than me because of what Christ has done for me. I love you because you belong to Jesus. Paul expressing his love for the church in Philippians 4, verse 1. It says, Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. So we can see the affection that 
Paul had for these people. You know, the, the first century church was not immune to problems, I know that. But it was Paul's mission, really, to, to get these guys straightened out, right? He, no doubt, I'm sure it was frustrating at times. But how did he refer to them here? Some of these immature Christians that he probably felt like just had no idea where they were going. He calls them longed for his joy and his crown. You know, there's difficulties along the way. But hopefully, we can think of the church and our brothers and sisters in this very same way. That's all I have prepared this evening. At this time, we'd like to offer the invitation. If there's one that needs the prayers of the church, if you're struggling, uh, we'd like to help you at this time. If you'd come forward, if there's one that uh, has been taught and wishes to be baptized, we ask that one of either class would come as we stand and sing the song of invitation.